Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. I don't think there's a show that our family's watched more. I know for the girls, uh, Gilmore Girls is up there pretty high and have gone through, I don't know, at least several times. The Office ranks pretty high in our house. I don't think anything compares to Friends. We refer so often to the one, the one, you know, um, it's so cleverly titled as well. And, you know, the, 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 the show, the six friends, their friendships created what is often referred to in conversations about the show, the friends phenomenon, where so many people in culture, and not just in the United States, but around the world, will actually describe the kind of friendship they're longing for, that they really believe they were made for, through the lens of the TV show Friends. That kind of laughter, that kind of acceptance, that level of goofiness, doing life together, eating together, cooking together, the ups and downs, the trials of life, but in the end, we're always there for each other. There is a deep, deep craving in all humans that has been revealed, funny enough, through a TV show. Part of the Friends phenomenon is that in 2018, when word leaked out that Netflix was going to be um, removing friends from its lineup, I mean, millions of people just kind of freaked out. People went into berserk mode and a a change.org petition was created. And Netflix, it's reported that Netflix decided in response to spend upwards of $100 million to keep the show on their platform for two more years because of the sentiment of the public. And by 2019, It was one of, if not the most watched show on Netflix. So many years later, after leaving NBC, I found this uh, in the past week or two, this Reddit post by a woman named Virginia. And she says this, I feel like TV shows and movies have given me an idealistic perception of what friendship should be like. Conversations always seem to go well. The awkward characters are either adorkable, she says, or have some great quality that gives them a happy ending. Friendship groups are tight, tight-knit, amazing, like in Friends and so many other shows. I remember as a 12-year-old lamenting over how my friendships weren't all that great. When I moved into my teenage years, I was anxiety-ridden. Now, as an adult, I've improved a bit socially, but I've realized I need to become more realistic about what friendships can be. The people I meet, they are not well-written characters, and my life isn't always an interesting story. I do appreciate the friends in my life, but I keep craving for those amazing friendships I've seen portrayed. Like, I don't even know if those friendships are actually possible. Maybe they could be, and maybe I'm just doing something wrong, Virginia says. If I could define my perspective of the friends phenomenon, I would say that there are people all over the world, and especially since COVID, that are deeply longing to find that kind of friendship. The fun, and when the serious or the heartbreaking happens, they're just there. 
always around you, no matter what. And millions and millions of people, as part of the Friends phenomenon, wake up one day to find that actually their reality is pretty much lonely, battling discouragement, not able to experience the ideal that they've seen portrayed for so long, questioning what's wrong with them. And when this does come up with, uh, in conversation with me, just casually or even planned, like, hey, Brad, can we talk? Uh, and the point of conversation is just the emptiness or the loneliness somebody feels. I, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I'm in throughout the year related to this, this idea. How reality is nothing like what we've seen portrayed, not just in t in, on TV, but often in social media, the best image of someone's life, the super, super close friends they seem to have, the ideal that we've had about friendships on college campuses, or sports buddies, or neighbors always throwing block parties or traveling together, wondering why I can't actually have that in my life. Why am I not accepted? What is it about me? This is part of the friends phenomenon that if the whole world could actually look realistically and truthfully at the rest of the world, we'd see that we're a planet that feels pretty lonely. Close, trusting friends who know the real you and believe in you anyway and love you anyway not only is that an ideal that's been portrayed for us in media, in art, it's actually hardwired into us by God, our creator. This is what we were made for. I believe the writers of these shows and these ideals are writing from a deep longing in themselves. There's something in our spiritual DNA that was designed for this kind of community. And we know it. And if we can't find it ourselves, we'll write about it. And we'll sort of portray out what we really want to be the real experience of our own lives. If we were made, if you and I were designed to image God, to replicate his life, his voice, his power, his good and encouragement, then we learned something pretty remarkable back again in the very first pages of scripture and we're going to go to Genesis 1 here to look at something that when, when you know many years ago when I read this for the first time and I think it was a pastor on the west coast I believe that uh, in a book that he had written said something of this effect that just left me like wow I've never seen this it's been there all along and I just never saw this it's really in one sentence in Genesis 1 then God said let us make humans in our image and our likeness so that they may rule so the humans may rule, not the lording over rule. We talked about this in the first couple of weeks. But the ruling out of creative life that we would manage what it is to perpetuate life. That they would rule over all of life. The fish of the sea even. The birds of the air. Like everything that I've created, that we've created as God. And in this statement is this remarkable use of the first person plural pronoun. I had read it many times. I grew up in church. I'd heard this read. I just, it, this had never dawned on me. I'd never noticed it. That God says, and this is a literal, very, very good, accurate translation into English from the Hebrew. 
from what's called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. We have translated so well, God's saying, you know, I grew up picturing kind of this big gray-haired father God in heaven creating and sending lightning bolts everywhere in creation, when actually God said, let us. Let us. God is saying in this collaborative conversation, God the Father, God the Son who would someday come to be the words of God in flesh and blood, the, the perfect template of the image of God, and God's Spirit conversing with one another, let us make humans in our image. The pronouns used twice in the same sentence. This is remarkable. God is in community, together creating this species, this being that would thrive and perpetuate his life only when together. Only when unified as he's unified. This was the original design. And if you think, Brad, wake up, look at the world we live in. Everyone's divided. Everyone's in competition. No one trusts one another. I'm just telling you, part of my job here in the series is to take us back to what was intended before we took control, before we hijacked God's plan. It's almost hard to fathom a world where we would be in such unity we would be replicating God together. But this is the first page of Scripture. This is the part of the first words we're given in the story and intention of God. God conversing in community. We learn that God is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Unified together in creation. And we learn at the very start, the very beginning of his story, that if we are going to move into, if we are going to step into, we're not, our goal is not even perfection. We're not trying to perfect any kind of voice or image. We're trying to step into better and better tomorrow, this week, this year, 2023, that I would learn and train in the way of Jesus to image creator God better than last year, better than last month. That if we are taking this seriously, that this is where we find our design and what satisfies. If we're going to take imaging God seriously, we must step toward replicating the power, voice, love, generosity, goodness, creativity of God. We must do it together, just as God did. Look at another pivotal moment in Scripture. We're going to jump to the New Testament now. If you say, well, that's one verse in the Old Testament, and it's at the very beginning. It's so long ago. It's like it's so ancient. Does it really apply today? Well, let's look at a similar statement by Jesus in John 17. This is the prayer of Jesus in the garden just before his arrest, before he would go to the cross. I mean, think about what you would be praying. You know that you're about to experience Roman execution. The weight of the world is caving in all around you. You're in this agonizing prayer in the garden. Part of what you're praying is, Father, is there another way? Is there another way to rescue humans? But what becomes the dominant part of Jesus' prayer is that you and I would be together, unified. I don't know that I'd be praying that. I don't know. It's hard to put yourself in that kind of context. Jesus, God in the flesh, taking on 
all of, the, all of broken humanity just before the cross. I don't know what you'd be thinking or overwhelmed with or praying about. Jesus' all-consuming prayer was for you and I to be unified. We're going to read a portion of it, starting in verse 10. All I have is yours, Father, Jesus says, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them, the followers that you've given me. So he's praying for his immediate followers, and then it extends to you and me. All glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. So Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Here it is again. Jesus is now using this first-person plural. We are one. We are perfectly unified, and that is how we can accomplish your master plan. Not to just create the universe long ago, but now to recreate and rescue humans so that humans will once again, someday, live out the culmination of expressing our image. That only happens because of our perfect unity. And I'm praying that these imperfect followers of me would become so unified that their unity would emulate our unity. Are you kidding me? Does Jesus, is he on the right planet? Does he see what's going on here? The race divisions, the infighting, the jealousy, being more in competition with neighbors and coworkers than this is what he's praying just before he goes to the cross. We were not designed to live. You and I were not designed to live, to thrive, to succeed, to accomplish great things in our lives. We were never designed to thrive and function apart from one another. Apart from this unity that is together becoming more and more the expression of God and his greatness. When I was in high school, last year of high school, my buddies and I joined a flag football league in Winchester. And all we did was fight with each other. Part of the problem, was, this was a leadership lesson, we had no coach. It was just us. It was just a bunch of 17, 18-year-olds. Hey, let's join this league together. And I kept saying that Jamie, our quarterback, should be in charge, calling plays. I mean, almost every play, we'd get up in the huddle, and we would be arguing about who was open. We should be going right. We should be going left. I mean, it was just constant. We just constantly fought. We were the most maybe the most dysfunctional football team in football history on any level. And what was so deceptive is somehow we, we won. We kept winning. And we ended up first place, which still I cannot explain, in our league. And we ended up going to this league's Virginia State playoffs three hours away in Hampton, Virginia. And the deception was, doesn't matter that we fight and that we're so awfully dysfunctional, maybe that's part of our magic sauce. Maybe we're really good because we just argue all the time. You know, I don't know. We, it was just, it was horrible. And so our parents never came to any of our games because this was just kind of a, you know, early Saturday morning deal. We'd 
drive ourselves to our games. Our parents get super excited that we've made the playoffs. So all of our parents get hotel rooms and take us to, they have no idea what they're in store for. They drive us to Hampton, we spend the night, we wake up early, we had one of the first games in the playoffs. We get out, I think some of the parents were probably still at the concession stand getting coffee when we get annihilated in our first game. Knocked out of the playoffs. By 8 a.m., we're done. We argued and fought through that whole game. We had to call timeout in this game because we were fighting with each other. And the other team, they don't take advantage of the timeout and meet and huddle up. They just stand waiting for us to finish fighting. We'd look over and the team's just waiting. And we'd group up again and it was, it was horrific. And to make matters worse, uh, somebody, when I had the ball, I was running with the ball at one point, somebody reached out to grab my flag and they broke the string of my, and my pants fell all the way down while I was running with the ball. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of unrelated to the story. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, that was adding insult to injury. And I was humiliated. Our parents were so embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I wasn't embarrassed because my pants fell <laughs> I was embarrassed because all we did was fight. And we, were, and we, we drove home three hours just like, I'm not sure we'll ever speak to each other again. And we all went to church together. I didn't tell you that part. We were all, of our, we were all friends from church. We were not made to accomplish anything outside of unity. And when the unity, when the unifier, unifying common denominator is becoming more and more God's image, and we, we are championing that in one another, and we're understanding when someone falls, or someone missteps, or there's a bad moment, we understand it because we've lived it. And we know what human brokenness is. And God's grace and good loves me anyway. We have this charged ability to love someone who's been hurtful or ugly. This kind of community that begins forming and cheering for each other becomes incredibly attractive to those outside in our world who are chasing careers and great retirements and success and trophies, but there's still this void where they know they were designed for something that they aren't experiencing yet, and suddenly they see something so attractive in this place, this group of people called the church. This imperfect group of people have something that you can't find anywhere else on the planet. And Jesus speaks to it the further we go in his prayer. The massive, massive disappointment among humans, is that we deeply crave something we were designed for, whether we're conscious of it or not, we're, we deeply crave acceptance. We deeply long for friendship that is as much laughter as it is tears when we're hurting, that looks at us and can see the ugly and everything a part of us and still love us. We were designed for this, we long for it, and I'm not sure there's anything more hurtful on the planet when our experience is the opposite. When we're judged, when we're betrayed, when we begin inching close to someone who may be a friend and they end up not being a friend, 
They're selfish. They try to take advantage. We put walls up, and we, we, we're, we're educated humans today. A lot of us doing okay in our communities, maybe with our jobs, our careers, maybe even in the area of income and wealth building. Deeply, deeply wounded by other humans. And we build this distrust when we should be chasing the kind of community God designed us for that's patterned after his own community. Instead, we're building walls that are thickening and becoming more reinforced, walls of distrust. And when we try to image God alone, we always, always become discouraged or distracted. In every case, I will guarantee it, I've experienced it, I've talked with countless people who've experienced it. They're trying to do their best. They're trying to be better in their relationship with God. But when we try alone, you end up discouraged, you end up distracted. Always in our walk with God, our journey to connect with him. Our desire to image him. Last week we saw the opposite picture in Acts chapter 2. This group of imperfect people who were being restored by the love of Jesus. By the power of Jesus. Beginning to share meals with one another in one another's homes. They pray for each other. They're worshiping together. And it says that they're enjoying the favor of all the people. And God is adding daily to the number of people in the church. There's this magnetic attraction to outsiders who see what we long for is happening with this group of people. And it's happening, this growth, this drawing in because of God working and revealing his life, his power, his goodness through the unity of the church. If we continue in Jesus' prayer in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, like my 12 disciples, not just for my followers in Jerusalem. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's now praying for the whole world, for you and me. Isn't it crazy to think that Jesus, just before his arrest, was praying for you? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he actually includes you in his prayer. My prayer is for all of them who will believe through the message of my immediate followers, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is astonishing what Jesus is saying here. Hours before the pivotal moment in human history, not just Jesus' agonizing death on the cross, but his resurrection. This is, this is the big moment. Leading into this moment, he is praying, praying as the portal to what matters to the Father, what God's ultimate plan is, what his activity on earth is. He's praying that you and I would experience the same level of unity and cohesion and collaboration that he and the Father share. That we may image him so clearly together that the outside world will see and know 
the Father actually sent Je Jesus actually is from heaven. Jesus is actually God in the flesh. And this unity of this group of people is proving it. In the way we're restoring communities, the way we're giving hope, the way we create together, the way we love one another, the way we love broken, selfish people. I have given them the glory that you gave me, Jesus says, that they may be one as we are one. He's continuing this prayer. It doesn't end. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The ultimate evidence that the world is going to have of my reality is not great preaching. And it's not impressive looking church buildings. Jesus doesn't say if they build buildings with really tall steeples. If the bells in the church can ring out to the outer villages. If preachers will study communication so intently, the world will know. That's not what Jesus prays. Jesus prays that this group of broken people will come together with such uni unity about their brokenness. And about how they're being restored. And about the core, the source of their restoration. The outside world is going to be drawn. And we see in the book of Acts, that's exactly what happens. More and more people are being added daily to the number. Because there's something happening in the church that you can't find anywhere else on the planet. The world is going to know God's love through the unity of the church, is Jesus' prayer. Now, at the risk of overusing the word astonish or astonishing, because it is to me, and it's been in my journaling and notes and when I walk and spend time with God and pray and write down my thoughts of what I believe God is directing me to understand about him, I'm using this word astonishing intentionally. I'm using it a lot. At the risk of maybe overusing it this morning, Jesus' prayer in John 17 follows what he said just two chapters earlier. This is one of the most amazing things that Jesus says. To his followers in John 15, he says, I no longer call you servants. I want to tell you, those of you who have been with me for a few years, and now you see what's really going on. I didn't come to preach just great messages and be this really great person. You see that the restoration of humanity is underway. God... The Father has sent me, we have collaborated, that the plan is I will come and be the example of how humans can move back to what existence in the garden looked like. And because you understand this, I don't call you servants anymore. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, Jesus says. For everything I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Isn't that a staggering thought that Jesus' closest friends are those that have broken, competitive, argumentative fishermen, tax collectors that are cheating people? These are now the friends of God. Why? Because he's revealed, he's gotten to a place in relationship where he's revealing what's really going on. Jesus has led us in on what's actually going on. Friendship with God, imaging him to others in the world, is inextricably linked to closeness with one another. So how? We're going to spend the last bit of time here asking the question, how? How? 
in this world of division, people hurting one another, bullying, divorce, social media cancellations, people saying the wrong things all the time, betrayal. How in the world do we find and build this kind of friendship? We have to look at Jesus. We have to study the template, the blueprint. And we need to study and stay committed to the study of who he is. First, Jesus did not approach us. He is Lord over all. But he doesn't approach us as some commanding ruler. He came close to us in friendship. He comes close to us in rescue, in self-lowering, to elevate us, self-sacrificing. I mean, this is the dream kind of friend. And Jesus is the model. So I'm going to spend a few minutes here kind of unpacking together, dissecting what friendship looks like. And I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. I know we understand just social dynamics. But I want to speak for just, just a few minutes here on some things that I've learned personally. Um, sometimes the hard way. About how trust-centered friendship works. And uh, I'm going to try my best to just read the rest of this so I can stay on point. We begin relationships and connections through entry-level connection. Maybe you say, duh, well, of course, or maybe um, you've been subconscious. This is a subconscious thought. It usually starts with events or conversations related to things like pickleball. Or overhearing someone at work talk about how they like fishing or college football. Or maybe something obnoxious is said at work about politics and you speak up because you agree. And this kind of entry-level friendship has begun. You're off. But crossing paths and showing up at the same event or sharing similar political beliefs about the news or politics, uh, it's as basic as it gets. And I'm not going to use the word shallow um, because that's, that implies negative. We have to start somewhere. We start in relationships and friendships at surface level. That's just obvious. So this is kind of basic level, like, oh, you like to fish. And then maybe, maybe you take the risk of suggesting you fish together. Or maybe you actually take, take the step of having lunch together. But relationships that are trust-centered evolve and move from entry point to a deepening that hopefully will arrive at the place of empathy. And sadly, I think far too relationships ever, ever get past surface level. Just basic common interest. If relationships are to progress, particularly towards trust then they have to move into layers of community and connection. They have to. If building healthy, trusting relationships, if that's what God has called, if that's what we're designed for, then the conversation must progress from who won in March Madness last night, or what did Trump say, or what did Biden do yesterday, to now asking questions of genuine interest and care. This is, the next, this is where you move past surface level. How's the weather? Oh, the kids' play date, we'll meet on Tuesdays at the playground. To interest in the person being expressed. And again, I'm not, my intent is not to insult anyone. 
But I think we're so guarded reinforcing distrust that we may miss some of the basic elements of how we experience deepening trust-centered friendships. Now, when there's genuine trust and care, we begin talking about, about things related to how did the interview go? Or what's the update on how your mom's doing? See, this is the beginning of expressing, hey, I want to I hear more of your story. The evolving continues. The deepening layers or nuance, the texture of community is moving past just what interests me, the kind of friend that makes me feel good, more toward the expression of Jesus. And the, the, the more we move toward the raw reality of how someone is, where someone comes from, the hurt, maybe, maybe some of the mistakes, the fears that they struggle with, the more we're going to express Jesus, the more possible it is to express the reality and power and voice of Jesus. Healthy relationships are to move from small surface talk about your own common interest, and sadly, I would say much of the planet never moves past this. to interest in the person's story. From where are you from? To statements like, oh, I bet that was really hard. But Jesus' example isn't finished yet. He's still moving us toward the conversations. Hey, I saw tears in your eyes. I didn't want to say anything in front of others. But it seems like something's going on. Or you don't seem yourself. Maybe we can get coffee. The more vulnerable and transparent we become, the more we experience God's increased activity and power and possibilities so that the care and the fun and the conversation are deeply rooted in knowing the real person and we see God's image emerging in our conversation. Here's another thing I want to just hit quickly. We may, I may bring this up later in the series relationships, and I've learned this the hard way. Amy and I, um, going back many years, we just talked about this again recently, um, that relationships tend to be either life-giving, filling, fueling, or draining. There are neutral conversations that center around unemotional, inconsequential small talk about the weather or basic news, those kinds of things. But because of circumstances in our lives and pressures and stress and dreams, failures, guilt, conversations and people in our lives are either energy giving or energy taking. And we must be aware of this. It doesn't mean, oh, that's an energy taker, so I'm going to just avoid them the rest of my life. No, Jesus calls us to engage. But when we, when we engage understanding how relationships work, we sometimes engage with with. Boundaries in place. Wisdom says express love, care, but don't get sucked into something that could be toxic or something that could be hurtful. Be on guard. Allow God's spirit to lead you and guide you as you're a good friend to someone who may not be able to reciprocate it right now. We must be aware, not just of the people that you're allowing into your life, are they healthy? Are they an energy giver? 
Are they focused on me? We must also be aware of ourselves. What kind of friend? What kind of relator are you? Am I being in this relationship? Do you focus on your friendships mostly? Do most of your friendships focus on you? What you need? Your disappointments? Your struggles? Or is the empathy of Jesus emerging in you, in your heart, in your mind, as you reflect on people in your life? Is the empathy of Jesus beginning to define you? Define your image? In my life are people like Alton. I'm just going to use, I could use others. Alex is sitting here. Alex knows so much about my life. Alton knows so much about my life. I mean, these men know my greatest moments that would be inappropriate for me to talk about openly, you know, because maybe that's boasting. And they know about my worst moments. These are men who have encouraged me to not just pastor well, but to be a better husband to Amy. They know about crushed dreams. I have a friend now in Milwaukee. He's in our network, our church network. He pastors a church outside of Milwaukee. His name's Jason. Eric in Virginia Beach. My own brother, who know my struggles, my fears, what excites me, creative ideas. They know how to encourage me to trust God more deeply. But we live in a world with so many barriers to this kind of friendship. We have social media glass screen barriers. This very weird world that we live in. In digital and media communication where we are not really getting the full story. We're getting the best image that someone wants us to have of themselves. We often, in conversations, are putting our best out. We're not learning the real story, the real core of hurt. And I think even in this gathering, where we're building trust and we're getting to know one another, in, in the one-hour gathering, that is Sunday morning, we're limited. I think some of us allow this to kind of portray, ah, oh, I have community. But are we able here, in this one hour, to push into the questions and struggles and strengths and gifts and hurts and dreams so that we're actually getting to know one another. This is why what happened last Sunday afternoon is so powerful. We had the winery after church on Sunday, just to hang out time. I was telling Amy, man, we did this a month ago. Are people going to want in summer to go again? To the I mean, we had, I don't know, 40, 45 people went and hung out. So we're there for a couple hours. Around 5, I, I looked at my phone later. It was around 5.40, 5.45. I had to text Brandon, Tedder, um, a question about something. And he was like, he replied, dude, we're still at the winery. I was like, what? He's, I said, you and Brittany? He said, no, a bunch of people at church were still here. They've been there six and a half hours hanging out. He tells me later, we laughed and we told, and we got to learn more about each other. Amy and I just looked at each other like, man, it's happening more. We keep hearing stories of how this is happening around our church. There's email threads happening this week about fantasy football league. Uh, uh, our, what, what we're gonna, we have too many people interested in fantasy football this year to have just one league. We're going to have two divisions, it sounds like. If you're interested, let us know. This is a fun way to hang out. We may do a fantasy football barbecue. Our men's group on Monday nights around fire pits is going to relaunch in September. Not to overdo it about football, but Nate and Lisa Walters and some others have plan this idea. I just heard about it at the winery. They came up and said, hey, this fall, one Sunday, 
each month through the fall, we're going to just invite the whole church, whoever wants to hang out and watch football, a one o'clock game. They've got it planned all the way through the playoffs. And then what the Super Bowl plan is. I'm like, I love it. I know, even if that seems entry level, I know friendships are going to emerge and people are going to feel more connected over football games this fall. Rudy and I talked about doing this midweek, Wednesday night. Let's just see if people show up and want to talk about practice, making us better. And I mean, what are there, 25, 26 people in total that have been coming and just finding encouragement? If you haven't been able to do that, that's fine. The call this morning is for you to face the distrust that maybe has emerged in your life, the careful arm's length that you're, you, you tend to keep, for the idea of trusting a human being again. And in the context of Dulles Church, where we are not perfect, and we may, yes, disappoint one another from time to time, we are centered around the one who came from heaven to be our friend. We're patterning ourselves. Our effort is not in our own ability, our own social mastery. Our effort, our striving, our training is... To follow the one who knows what it is to live in community, collaborative community with God. And that he's calling us as we pattern our lives after him, as we train in his way, to actually step closer with more trust. Yes, toward broken people, but broken people who are being restored. I'm going to save this point uh, about the power of the question. We must learn the power of the question. Some of us are waiting for relationships to happen. We just keep waiting. Years, we, maybe you've been waiting decades for that special sort of portrayed on TV image of community. And you're waiting and waiting. And what God's calling you to do is to follow the example of Jesus and ask a lot of questions. We'll dive into that here in the weeks to come. For now... When we announce a luau, yes, it's going to be fun, and yes, the food's going to be great, but would you see the deeper vision that we have behind this in events like this, that we're creating this not to just sort of celebrate the end of summer, or we don't know what else to do on Sunday afternoon. We're designing these things so that we learn a little more of each other's stories. Would you prioritize when we launch groups at the end of summer and this fall, young moms groups that are designed to encourage. Being a young mom is not, there's fun, there is fun. I think our story was, it was a little bit fun and it was a lot, massive headache. Moms need each other. And we've got, we think, real encouragement to offer. There are other opportunities. There are going to be groups that emerge around food. Just Take a step, take a risk. I know you've been burned. I know you've been hurt. I know what that feels like. Jesus is calling us not to put our total trust in an imperfect person, but to put our total trust in him as he's perfecting and working better deep into each of us. Create your own lunches and your own coffees. Invite someone here who maybe you've said hello to on Sunday mornings to coffee. And ask something of their story. What brought them to Dulles? 
Do you have a church background? Did church hurt you like it did me? Why are you trusting Dulles? Ask these kinds of questions. Determine what level of trust you have with the person in your life, your various relationships. Is it entry level? Do you really not know the person very well? That's okay. Acknowledge that. That will help you acknowledge the trajectory that God wants you to be on with at least some people in your life, which is a deepening trust that grows and deepens over time to the point where you can express care and you can say, the hurt you're telling me about, I know what it feels like. When you can express the empathy of Jesus relating someone's hurt back to them because you've experienced it or you know, wow, we're getting somewhere. That is a picture of healing, restorative community. Maybe one of the greatest practical steps you could take following this series of practicing the way of Jesus, maybe one of the riskiest, is to make time in your schedule to respond to what someone has said to you or how someone has answered one of your questions. That you actually follow up with them. There's a lot more to say about this in the weeks to come. But I believe God is at work doing something really special here. I am so excited to be a part of it. It's good for me. I hope my friendships with many of you is good for you. I, I just, I feel hope. I look at the future. I don't see a depressing future where the world's spiraling out of control. I see the emergence of God's activity and God's movement on the planet, of moving us one step at a time closer to what he had in des designed all along. And I love that that's what we're really about here at Dulles, being a part of that. Jesus, I ask you to give us courage. Those of us who've been hurt and wounded by other people, it could be one of the most challenging, one of the deepest, most challenging struggles in life is to live out emptiness and loneliness and hurt while still craving acceptance and friendship. I pray that you give us courage here in the context of your church to live more of what it is to image you out to the world together with other people who are being restored.